Good evening. Glad you're here this evening to worship with us tonight. We'll get started with number 538. 538 will be a song that we'll sing this evening. And then we'll turn things over to Daryl and he'll get us going. 538. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness fails his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground. It is wonderful to see you all here tonight. I'm glad that you have made it out. Um, we want to welcome you to the Hoover Church of Christ, and we're glad that, glad that you are here with us. Um, on Wednesday nights, we, uh, during the summer, we are going to be um, welcoming several, uh, a guest speaker, a different guest speaker every week, and that is going to begin tonight, and so I'll introduce our speaker for tonight, uh, here in just a few minutes. Before we do anything else, we will uh, just briefly go over our announcements, have a prayer together, um, and then we will let the younger ones go on to their their classes here in just a moment. Um, I saw the Tanzania mission team off uh, today, uh, got them to the airport safely, and uh, so we're, we'll want to pray for them while they're gone. Um, Chuck and Kyle are, are, are on the on that mission team, and, and so uh, we will look forward to having them back, all of them, uh, back in just a couple weeks, a little less than a couple weeks. In a minute, we'll pray for those on our care lines, and I know that um, you will want to remember these people in your, in your personal prayers. Of course, those names are listed on a little sheet or in the email that you would have received today. So let's uh, keep all those people in our care lines and our prayers. I have several things coming up. Uh, just a couple things of note. Dale Hubbard uh, will be here Sunday to uh, speak at both uh, services and also will speak at Bible class, at the Bible class hour on Sunday. He's going to be uh, dealing with uh, financial stewardship as Christians, and so uh, I, I know Dale is very competent in that area, and we'll do a good job. So I hope hope everyone will come and be a part of that. VBS is coming up, and registration for Vacation Bible School is open, and we ask that uh, you go ahead and do that. Um, there will be um, 
t-shirts guaranteed for those who sign up by July 1st. So if you want a t-shirt, you want to be sure to do that. Um, I hate when this happens, but I was gone today and I did not um, get my changes in in time uh, to for my youth events. Most of the youth will already know this, but we had our movie and game night last night. Uh, so that the ones that were going on the trip to Tanzania uh, would be able to participate. We had a great time. Um, then there is another issue with the Sunday night um, activity. Uh, we were unable to see what movies would be playing until this week. Um, and we're not super excited about the choices for the little uh, children who might be going and so uh, we believe that we're going to wait for a more convenient and uh, desirable uh, set of choices on that. Um, but if you would like to get together and do something, uh, we do have a couple options for maybe watching a movie here if some people want to do that. So just see me about that if, if that's something you're interested in, and we'll talk about it. Um, We certainly want to let all of you know that uh, we are here uh, for uh, the purpose of, of praising God, of, of fellowshipping together as a spiritual family, um, and we know that as a family, uh, spiritual needs arise. Um, we have, uh, all have issues going on in our lives. We have spiritual challenges. Um, we want to make sure that you always feel welcome uh, to share those uh, with us um, you know so when we come in here on Wednesday nights if you have something that you would like for us to pray for uh, feel free to come talk to us beforehand or or right now as we close this announcement portion before our prayer if you have any uh, needs whether physical or spiritual that you'd like to add to that prayer we would be happy to hear about those and pray for those in just a moment anyone have any needs all right, well, let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer together. Our Father, we love you. We worship you. We adore you. We thank you for every blessing that, that you've bestowed upon us and that you shower on us each day. God, you're so good to us, and, and we don't deserve your goodness and your grace. Uh, but we're thankful for the hope that we have, that we share, and we, we pray that our lives would be a reflection of that gratitude and we pray for our hearts we pray for the hearts of those with whom we come in contact and we pray for guidance in the way that we interact with people so that we would be a light to them that we would draw them to you and uh, shine uh, shine the attention and the light on you father and lord we are grateful to you tonight that that we can lay before you the names of these who uh, who have been sick and who uh, are, are struggling with different ailments and we pray father that you would hear us now as we bring them before your throne we pray for carol norris um, as she recovers from her surgery we pray for joy jones uh, who is also recovering from surgery we, we pray that um, she'll she'll recover quickly Father, we ask you to be with Charles Webster um, and 
just pray that his heart issues would, uh, would improve. We thank you that it wasn't more serious than, than we feared. Father, we're thankful. Uh, we pray that you would be with Vanessa Coleman. We ask that you would be with Chris Hethcox um, in his cancer diagnosis. And we know that you're bigger than cancer and are able uh, to do great things. And we pray that your will be done in that life. We pray for Thomas Johnson, for Joe Huffman. We ask you to be with Ethan Bowers and Christy Key. And Lord, we just ask your blessings on each family, every child, every man and woman. And we, we pray that you would be with each of us in uh, the ways that you know we need the most. And that we know that sometimes those needs are different than the wants uh, and the requests even. But you have a way of working things out for us and with us and in us that uh, we don't always we don't always ask for, but we know that you've you've got our best interest at heart. Father, we pray for the group that is on their way to Tanzania, and we ask for safety uh, for their travels. We ask for um, guidance for. Um, the work that they're going to be doing and we pray that you'll lead them toward um, open hearts and that you'll bring help them to bring souls to you father we thank you for this church for the family that it truly is and we just ask that you would help uh, that you would help each of us to do our part to make this body healthy and uh, to help it to function the way that, that you want it to. Bless us, Father, uh, when we fail. Uh, help us, help us, uh, give us, uh, forgive us when we, when we sin and uh, as we strive to, to live for you. Now, Father, we ask your blessings on our studies tonight, um, and we pray that uh, we would, again, be more apt to focus on you and that we would listen to the teachers and uh, to those imparting wisdom to us tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. take any more of the our speakers time tonight we want to welcome uh, to Hoover tonight Jeremy Hout. Jeremy is the minister at the Greenbrier Church of Christ in Anniston Alabama um, he has been married to Trista for 22 years they have two sons uh, Trafton who's 17 and Rylan who's 14 
Um, has a couple of degrees, good ones from uh, Lubbock and, and Abilene, and we're um, has a, an MDiv in counseling, which is is very helpful in the Brotherhood today. I'm glad that uh, more uh, men and women are, are doing that and putting the work in to, to become more helpful in those areas. But we're glad that uh, Jeremy is here with us tonight, and, and we want to welcome him, and, and we're looking forward to hearing what he has to say tonight. Jeremy. Good evening. The elders and the congregation at Greenbrier in Anniston send their welcome to you. And they wanted me to let you know that they were praying for you tonight um, because we are so thankful to be in partnership with brothers and sisters in Christ who are thoroughly invested in the work of the kingdom and being about the business of loving God and loving people. You might not know this, but this is not my first time to be here. Uh, this coming Sunday, I was here 23 years ago. My wife and I had gotten married, and we were flying out of Birmingham. And so we came and worshipped with you 23 years ago. So if I look familiar, you're probably mistaken. Changed a lot. Um, but I'm excited about the opportunity to be here with you tonight. And uh, when I was asked to talk about the subject of, of Lord, help me have a God-honoring marriage, uh, I really appreciate the fact that this is something that you as a congregation feel the need to talk about. You see, it was the summer of 1942, and there was a young man on his way to fight in World War II, and as he was on his way to Memphis, Tennessee to get on the train to go to war, he looked out of the window and he saw a 12-year-old girl in a cotton patch. So this young man pulled his truck over to the side of the road and he approached the young girl in that cotton patch and he said to her, uh, hello, my name is Ollie Spencer and I'm about to go die in the war. I don't have a lot. But what I would like to do is, if you were willing, I would like to marry you so that when I die, you can have all of my meager possessions. And the 12-year-old girl agreed. And they went off very quickly and got married in town. And he left her and went to Memphis to go fight in war. And she went home to her parents' house. Two years later, that young man, Ollie Spencer, came back from war. He didn't die. And he went home to his home and to his wife. And they lived together for 58 years, and they had three children, and they had eight grandchildren. And Ollie, Eugene, Ollie Elihu Spencer was my grandfather. And that story, for my entire life, formed a beacon. It was a basis of what could happen when a man and a woman, regardless of their circumstances, came together in a decision and an effort to love each other. It was one of my favorite stories ever told. Until I told it at my grandfather's funeral and saw the look of horror on my mother's face when I realized that that was a lie. Yes, they got married, but my grandmother was 13, not 12. And yes, my grandfather went off to war. And yes, they had three children and eight grandchildren. But I grew up with this Hallmark movie lie 
about what marriage is and what marriage is supposed to be about. I understand that according to culture, I'm a bit weird. My grandparents, both sets, my mom's parents and my dad's parents, they were married for well over 50 years. My in-laws just celebrated 51 years of marriage three days ago. My mom and dad, a month ago, celebrated 50 years of marriage together. And like I said, this coming Sunday, Trista will have been married to me for 23 years. Longevity is a part of my DNA. It's a part of who I am. It's a part of, of, of what I'm trying to pass on, the legacy that I'm trying to pass on to my children. But I wouldn't for a moment, and my parents, and my in-laws, and my grandparents would not for a moment look at you and say that marriage has always been gumdrops and lollipops and unicorns and rainbows. Anyone who has ever dealt with another human will tell you that marriage is hard, that life is hard. If we could just find somebody that would always give over to my wants and to my wishes, marriage would still be hard. Marriage would still be difficult. There are times that marriage is not only, easy, not only difficult, it's just outright impossible. And so as we get started tonight, I just want to lay it out there and I want to admit that marriage isn't easy. That's why it is so important for those of you whose marriage have endured the test of time that you are willing to pour into those coming behind you. It's important that you, you exhibit in their lives and in your life what commitment truly looks like because we're in a, com in a culture in which commitment is just another word. Another point that I want to make up front as well is I don't really know you as a congregation. You don't really know me as a person. And I don't know uh, what your history is. I don't know what your history has been individually and personally. But before we go any farther, I just want to stop and I just want to say that I know there are a lot of single moms and single dads that go and worship God every single Sunday. And they work as hard as they can in the kingdom. And they work as hard as they can with their family. And it's difficult. It's hard enough when you have a partner that's going to help provide and protect and discipline. But when you're doing it solo, you deserve a medal. Or at least a vacation. All expense paid. And so, I don't want anything that I say tonight to be taken the wrong way. Because I have a lot of friends who didn't want a divorce. And I have a lot of friends who wanted a divorce, but they have enough to deal with without some guest speaker coming in and making you feel guilty for life. So I want you to understand that I'm in no way here to shame anyone. What I was asked to do was come to talk about how God can help us have a God-honoring marriage. And so I want to keep both those balls in play tonight. And if I fail in some way, shape, or form, I need you to know up front that's where my heart is. So let's get into the text. I want you to look with me in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12. And I thought I just hit that button. Do I not just hit that button? There we go. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3. We're going to read verse 3 through 10, I'm sorry. 
And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And they said to him, Well, why then did Moses give, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, then it is better not to marry. Let's pray. Lord, I, I beg you to be with me tonight as I speak, and that the words that I speak are words of truth, and words of love and compassion, and words that honor you. Father, I pray tonight as we talk about marriages and we talk about commitment that we will be pointed back to you and we will live lives of thanksgiving for what you have allowed us to be involved in and to be a part of. Lord, I'm thankful for this chance to speak about your will and your desire. And Lord, I pray that you will be glorified, not only in this setting, but in every aspect of our lives. And so, Father, we pray this prayer through Jesus' name. Amen. As with any passage of Scripture, we need to look at the context. And we need to look at it in the literary context as well as the historical context. So first, let's look at the literary context. It's important to understand that when Matthew was writing his gospel, he just didn't take a whole lot of stories about Jesus and just stick them in one book. Every story that Matthew tells about Jesus is put in a specific order for a specific purpose. And so we need to understand that before we get to Matthew chapter 19, we have to look at what was going on in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Peter asks a question that has extreme relevance to our discussion tonight. Peter says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. And so in order to emphasize the point, Jesus tells a parable. He says there's a man who is in great debt. He owes a very large debt, and he can't repay the debt. And so he begs, he pleads for mercy, and the one who owns the debt allows the man to go free. But instead of sharing that same grace which he just received, this man who was the big debtor goes out and finds someone who owes him a little debt, owes him a small debt, and he demands to be paid. And when the, the man with the little debt can't pay it, the big debt guy takes the man and throws him into prison. Now, when the king hears what's happened, he knows that he had forgiven a big debt, and this man who was greatly forgiven refused to forgive. So he takes the man and he throws him into prison. And Jesus concludes the story in verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. 
That's a sober warning as we talk about marriage. Because the placement of our text this morning lets us know that there are few human interactions that come so preloaded with the need of forgiveness than marriage. Ex-spouses need to take that to heart. So do currently married people who nurse long-held grudges against their spouse. And so does the church. If we are truly going to be the hands and feet of God, if we are truly going to fill, uh, fulfill those two great commandments of loving God and loving people, then we need to go out and show our community how scandalous the all-incomprehensive and encompassing love and forgiveness that's available in Christ Jesus. Because at times in our history, the church has been less loving and more ruthless. Maybe not this church. Maybe just the churches that I grew up in. Maybe just the churches where I serve. Secondly, we need to note the historical context in which Jesus spoke the words. And by historical context, I mean what's going on in the culture? Why would they even have this conversation? Jesus taught these hard truths about marriage in a culture in which divorce was not only the accepted norm, it was the preferred norm. In fact, there was quite a debate about the issue going on. There are two schools of thought in Jesus' day. The first was held by a rabbi named Hallel, and the second one was held by a rabbi named Shammai. And both of them based their teachings based on what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a certificate of divorce, give it to her, and send it from his house. Now, Hillel emphasized the part that says, if she becomes displeasing to him. Hillel said that if your wife does anything at all that causes you displeasure, anything that causes you some kind of uncomfort or discomfort, then you have the right to put her away. He even taught that if she burns your supper, those are grounds for divorce. Rabbi Shammai focuses on the word indecent, something indecent, and he said this is an extremely strong word that refers to gross immorality or uncleanliness. He says that the offense that she commits has to be extremely serious before you would even consider it. Here's the weird thing. Humans have always been selfish. Humans have always been self-centered. So which one of those two thoughts do you think was winning the day? The preacher who said, if your wife displeases you at all, you can get rid of her? Or the preacher who said, you got to stick with her unless it's something gross, something negligent? Well, of course. The one who fulfilled the selfish desire, the one who fulfilled the selfish need, was winning the day. And so that's the historical context in which these men are coming up to talk to Jesus. The core teaching in Matthew 19 uh, is an important question because most of the time we get so busy arguing over the other things in the passage that we never get around to talking about what Jesus actually said. Look at verse 3. Some of the Pharisees came to him to test him. Isn't it interesting that folks 
care a whole lot less about what God actually intends for our life, but they would rather use the Bible as something to test people's uh, morality. That, that instead of the, the Bible being a letter from God that shows us what it is to know Him and to be known by Him, to love Him and to be loved by Him, they want to use the Bible as some sort of test. That's not a new way of life. That's not a new function. That's not a new action. These men come to Jesus not because they are interested in knowing how can I have a God-honoring marriage. They come to Jesus with this question because they want to be able to point a finger at him and say, you are a heretic. You are a radical. You're not worthy to be a rabbi. So pay very careful attention to what happens in verse 4. Because Jesus says, haven't you read? I don't know about you, but I get really excited when I read that in the text. I love when Jesus enters a discussion. He goes, oh, haven't you read? Because a couple things are going to be true. First, of course they've read it. They're the scribes. They're the Pharisees. They're the teachers of the law. They've read the law. But they've read it. They just don't understand it. It's very much like if we were to give a, a 10-year-old a, a book on quantum physics and ask them to read a couple chapters. Can they read the words in the book? Yes. Do they understand what they mean? Not a chance. And so Jesus says, have you read? I know you've read it. I know you don't understand it. So let me point you back to what God originally intended for you to know. Jesus shows us that... that when we come to Him and we want to know what His will is for our life, we must always start with Scripture. Jesus insists that social custom, personal preference, and religious policy be submitted to the authority of Scripture. Jesus doesn't care one iota about what Hillel or Shammai has to say. Jesus doesn't care about the, the cultural, social customs of the day. He's not intimidated by the personal preferences of his own disciples or anybody else. What Jesus was worried about is what does the Bible actually say? What does God actually intend for us to know? If you don't hear anything else that I say all night, here's the mustard seed that I want you to take with you. I want you to, to make sure that every aspect of your life is submitted to the authority of Scripture. Because it doesn't matter what a preacher says. It doesn't matter what a shepherd says, an elder says. It doesn't matter what a, a book that you've read had to say if it does not line up with the authority of Scripture. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't deal with their objections or their interpretations or their thoughts or their ideas. He says, what does Scripture have to say? Because marriage is God's idea. And so if we're going to be in a relationship, then we need to go back to Scripture to figure out how do we live in that relationship. And as soon as I say that, I understand that there are folks who think, you know, that's all well and good. But I can't find a single passage of scripture that tells me how I'm supposed to act when my wife or my husband hurts my feelings. 
I can't find anything in Scripture that tells me how am I supposed to react when my husband embarrasses me in public or my wife gets historical or my spouse acts like a jerk. What am I supposed to do when I'm already carrying 99% of the load and they want to give me their 1% as well? If that's your struggle, I think I've got a couple passages that might help. The first one is in Luke chapter 6, verse 31. Where Jesus says, treat people the way you desire to be treated. Now this one's always tricky. Because I've got a 17-year-old and I've got a 14-year-old. And we have this discussion all the time. You treat people the way that you want to be treated. Yeah, but dad, he was a jerk to me. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say treat people the way they treated you. He says you treat people the way you want to be treated. If they... If they're coming at you with anger or malice or, or hatefulness, you treat them with love and compassion and grace and forgiveness. Even if they never return it. Because that's what a child of God should do. John 13, 34. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Wouldn't it be great if every time you got into a discussion with your spouse and it got kind of heated, you thought, wait a minute, what I need to do is love you the way that Christ loved me. That would end a whole lot of arguments. What about Romans chapter 12, verse 10? Be devoted to one another in love. And if it's really stressful in your marriage, then maybe Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't marriages, even in the kingdom of God, even in the body of Christ, where a husband and a wife don't treat each other more like an enemy than they do a loved one. I've had a lot of people that were born and raised in the church that have been Christians for a long time come and sit on the couch in my office and say, Jeremy, we need to talk because I hate them. And my response is always the same. How do you love them? The next core teaching that Jesus brings us back to is that Jesus' intent was to recover God's original plan for marriage, one man, one woman, living in a permanent relationship characterized by faithfulness and unity. Listen again to what he says. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus does what Jesus does. He goes back into the Old Testament scripture and he says, you want to know the answer to the problem? What happens in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27? What happens in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? Do you remember the creation story? Do you remember that on day one, God created light from darkness and he said it was good? I'm making sure you're awake. Day three, God uh, creates plants and bushes and trees, and he says it was good. Day four, uh, God puts the sun and the moon and the stars. Day five, we get fish and birds. Day six, we get animals. And God says everything's good, and then he comes to man. He comes to Adam, and he says, something's not right. 
The only thing in all of creation that was not good. And so God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God created Eve to complete, to fulfill, to be in a relationship with Adam. That's always been the intent. Ever since the garden, that's what God has desired for mankind, for man and woman to come together and to be in a relationship with each other that is mutually edifying. But that's not the culture of the day. Because in verse 10 of the text, did you notice what the uh, disciples asked Jesus? You see, culture had taken the gift that God provided back to mankind in Genesis chapter 2, and they distorted it to the point that the disciples would make this conclusion. If that's the situation between a husband and wife, if one man, one woman living together forever, if that's the intention, then it's better if we never get married. Let me get this straight. So Jesus, what you're saying is what God decided back in the garden wasn't a good decision. Does anybody really want to claim that? I mean, that's not a very high view of marriage. The disciples were shocked that Jesus would take such a hard line. And they thought that if marriage was supposed to be a permanent idea, it was better to remain single. And we live in a culture that continues to distort the idea of marriage. We don't teach anymore that God's design for the only imperfection of all creation was one man, one woman coming together to live together in mutual edification and in harmony and in love. It's not just a good idea. It's a God idea. The one whose thoughts and ways are far higher, that far exceed any of our thoughts or ways or ideas. And so Jesus finishes this teaching. The third core teaching that we need to notice tonight is that little things left unresolved will always become big things. Jesus doesn't deny that Moses gave instructions about divorce. But he explained it. Jesus said, yes, I know that Moses gave permission for divorce. But the reason that he gave the permission was because your hearts were so hard. I've never had anybody come to me and say, Jeremy, my marriage is falling apart because I woke up one morning and thought today would be a good day to have an affair. It's not the big things like infidelity or abuse or abandonment that makes our marriages struggle. Usually marriages suffer because of the little things. Criticism. Lack of respect. Taking one another for granted. All of those are like a a small crack in the wall that when you first notice them, you think, well, that's kind of annoying. I need to get around to fix that. But you let it stay, and the crack gets bigger and bigger, and eventually the wall falls down. In many marriages, little things eventually become big things, and they begin to rip away at the relationship because the partners, all they can see are the issues, not the person 
They nurse their hurts. They become paranoid and say, well, you know, I know he said this, but what he really meant was... That's why Solomon says in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, are vineyards that are in bloom. If you know the story of Song of Solomon, the song, you know that Solomon is reminding her, our love is in bloom, we're growing to get to know each other, we're coming closer to each other. Let's not let the little bitty things get in there and ruin what is being cultivated in our life. Guys, I know marriage is hard. But I also know that God expects us to stick with it. Our our marriage relationship is a reflection to the world of God's relationship with the church. The same love, the same commitment, the same kindness, the same forgiveness, all of that that is available from God to the church must be available from husband to wife and from wife to husband. You see, God doesn't say, hey, I want you guys to love each other. I think that's a good idea. God says, I'm going to love you and show you what that looks like. There was a time, and, and I know it's really, it's, it's difficult. You've got a guy coming in here, a very tall, good-looking guy that comes in, and he's just talking to you about marriage, and you're not really sure you know, what's his history? What is he qualified to do? Why is he even qualified to have this discussion? So I want to tell you a story, and this is a true story. In 2000, my wife and I got pregnant, and we we're going to have our first child. On Valentine's Day, we lost that baby. And so life was hard. We had moved to Atlanta, Georgia, to start working with the congregation. So there was the stress there, and then we, we suffered the death of our child, and so there was stress there. And then God blessed us with another baby who was born February 9th, 2001. And we brought him home from the hospital that very first night, and he didn't sleep at all. But my mother-in-law was there, and she helped us that first week. And then my mom and dad came for the second week. And, you know, he didn't sleep that first night or the second night or the third night or the fourth night or the fifth night or the sixth night, seventh night. And then my mom and dad showed up, and they said, no, 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 we've had kids. We know how to handle it. Well, what you got to do is you got to feed them, and you got to get them wrapped up really tight. And he didn't sleep that night or the next night. We went six months. He didn't sleep through the night a single time. He wasn't a bad child. He wasn't a cranky child. He just wanted to coo and to laugh and wanted somebody there with him. A year passes. He still has yet to sleep through the night. And I'm trying to start a new ministry, and my wife is trying to be a new mom, and we're living in a new town, and we're trying to figure all of this out, and there's all of this stress. And 18 months passed, and he still hasn't slept through the night. But he can get out of bed now, and he can toddle, and he can come to our bed and laugh in the middle of the night. And I don't think it's funny. And 
and I would go to the office at the church building and I would try to sleep and I would come home and my wife would look at me and she would say, can you just give me an hour? We started to take each other for granted. She wasn't sleeping, I wasn't sleeping. Trafton was having the time of his life. And we began to get snippy with each other. And we began to fight about everything. And her mom would come and visit and volunteer to take care of Trafton, but I didn't want to be a bad dad, so I got up with him. And Trista didn't want to be a bad mom, so she got up with him. We didn't need any help. And I would go to elders meetings and deal with all the church stuff and then I would go try to have Bible studies with folks and deal with all of that stuff and and it all came to a head one night and I came home and as soon as I walked in she said could you and I said no I don't want to and she said but I, and I said I don't care I'm tired I'm sick I'm done and I had every intention of getting in my car going to the bank withdrawing every penny that we had in checking and savings and going and living in a tent somewhere in the Appalachian Mountains. I just needed peace. I slammed the door on my way out. I could hear her sobbing in the house. And I got in my car and I drove out of the driveway and I started to head to the bank. And this crazy thing happened. Caught a red light. And I looked over, and there, out of the left side, there was a Chick fil A. And the sign on the marquee said, A family is worth fighting for. And I pulled off to the side of the road, and I just bawled. And I went home. And I walked in the door. And there my bride was holding my child. And I got down on my knees in front of her and I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I took you for granted. I'm sorry that I was selfish. I'm sorry that I refused to love you. I'm sorry that I took this gift that God had placed in my life and I didn't treat you like a gift. I treated you like a burden. And we decided that that would never happen to us again. And I decided that what I was going to do was I was going to start living out my thanksgiving of her love for me. And so I held her hand when we walked through the mall. Not so that she wouldn't spend any money, just because I needed to hold her hand. And I opened the door for her and pulled out her chair. I began to address her every day with, good morning, beautiful. I love you. I quit letting her fend for herself. I began to only say words that were compassionate and loving. I decided it was time to practice the art of forgiveness and to let stuff go that I had been holding on to for far too long. I believed that I was going to do what the Apostle Paul said when he said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
You see, I understood that Jesus Christ died not for the things about me that he likes. Not the things about me that give him joy or give him pleasure. Jesus Christ died for my sin, the very thing about me that he hates. And if I was going to be the husband that I was intended to be, that I was called to be, that God created me to be, I would live the rest of my life loving my wife, willing to die for the things that she does that I hate. I would be lying to you if I told you that it's been easy. I would be lying to you if I told you that it was perfect, because it's not. It's still a work in progress. But what I have learned over the last 17 years is that as long as my intention is to be a man of God, it must be seen first and foremost in my relationship with my wife. God has allowed couples to come and to be involved in my life that have ripped back the curtain and they have showed us and explained to us how you get to 25 years, 30 years, 50 years, 60 years. We have had couples who have loved us enough to come in and show us that if a family is going to work, it must be protected with love because a family is always worth fighting for. And so tonight, I need you to know that if your marriage is struggling, you're not alone. In my mind, one of the greatest things about the kingdom of God is gray hair. And I look out in this crowd tonight and I see enough gray hair to know there are men and women who have been through what you are going through. They have come through the other side of what you are just beginning to come through. And if you are willing to let them, they will teach you what it is to love your wife, to love your husband, and to be a man and a woman of God. Because at the end of the day, if you can't love the people that God has placed in your life, the people that love you back, how in the world will you ever learn to love a community of people that don't care one iota about God? At the end of the day, if you can't learn what it is to overlook, to love, to be compassionate to the man or to the woman that lives life with you, The community outside the walls of this building who doesn't know about God or doesn't care about God won't care a thing that you have to say about the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of our King, our Creator, our Redeemer, and our Sustainer. The greatest witness that you have is your ability to love. And if we really and truly believe what we say we believe, if we really and truly are who we claim to be, we will allow Jesus Christ, we will allow God, we will allow the Spirit to be seen front and center in our marriages so our marriages will reflect the God that created the idea of marriage in the first place. It's a great calling. It's not an easy calling, but it's a great calling. And if you're willing to love deeply, it will be the greatest blessing of your life. Let's pray.
Father, I'm so thankful that from the very beginning you looked and you understood that Adam had everything. He had you. Uninterrupted, unadulterated relationship with you. And you understood that what Adam needed was a woman to share his life with. And so in your infinite wisdom, you created man and you created woman. And Father, ever since that creation, we have been trying to figure out what it is to be loving and compassionate. And unfortunately, we live in a society that does not place a high premium on your creation. And so, Father, I pray that we will live lives that demonstrate to our culture what love is supposed to be. Father, I pray for the husbands in this room whether they are newly married or they have been married for 60, 70 years. Father, I pray that you will give them grace and mercy and that they will be able to treat their wives with the love and the respect that we see in your relationship with the church. Father, I pray for the women in this room, the wives, whether they're newly married or whether they have been married for 50, 60, 70 years, and I pray that they will treat their husbands with respect and kindness, that they will be their husbands' greatest cheerleaders and encouragers. And Father, I pray that those who have walked this journey for a long time, who are in the silver years of their lives, that they will reach down and mentor to the younger couples. Father, I pray that our younger couples will live lives of marriage that will show to our young people what it is to enjoy marriage and life together. Father, I thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for mercy. I thank you for Jesus Christ, who not only left the cross empty when he completed the work of our salvation, but he left the tomb empty when he allowed us the hope of living in heaven for eternity with you. And it's through his name that we pray. Amen.